You know, I've met parents who have great ambitions for their children. They're hoping to shape child prodigies academically, musically, artistically, maybe athletically. They spend time and money on camps and lessons and trainers. There's nothing wrong with providing children with these advantages. But you can do all that I've mentioned and more and not fulfill a parent's purpose. For as we learned last week, above all else, a parent's God-given responsibility is to teach their children obedience and respect. You see, left to himself, a child will disobey and go his own way. A child needs to learn to obey and honor. And he or she won't learn it from the world we live in. It's a parent's purpose to teach them. We're studying here Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Paul's principles for parents. Remember our acrostic that's serving as an outline for our studies on parenting. PTA. P, a parent's purpose. That was last week. Today, it's the T, a parent's tools. And then next week, it'll be the A, what a parent needs to avoid. This morning, though, we want to look at the tools of a parent. Chapter 6 in Ephesians reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And then today's instruction, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Again, last week we talked about a parent's purpose. We need to teach our children obedience and respect. You see, you win a child's respect while you insist on their obedience. And then you teach them to obey by employing two tools. The training and admonition of the Lord. Or to say it another way, correction and direction. Paul is telling us that godly parenting is a proper blend of both discipline and encouragement. Martin Luther put it this way, Spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he has done well. You see, to be a good parent, you need two tools, a rod and an apple. My second son, Nick, he was a great kid, but he was a kid nonetheless. And there were days when Nick, like all kids, would push his limits and test his boundaries. Well, one such day when Nick was about five years old, he had pushed and pushed, and he had pushed me to the brink. Finally, I sent him to his room while I went to the kitchen to fetch the dreaded wooden spoon. I was just about to dish out the discipline when Nick looked up to me through teary eyes. And with his little quivering voice, he asked, Dad, when you finish spanking me, will you give me a great big hug? Well, my heart melted. I mean, what an anger-diffusing, daddy-disarming, mercy-motivating comment for a child to make. And of course, being the loving, compassionate father that I am, guess how I responded to my son? I said, Nick, Nick your daddy will give you a warm hug right after I give you the spanking you deserve. Then I took that spoon and I applied the discipline my child needed. 
For it takes both warm hugs and wooden spoons to properly and biblically raise a child. Hebrews 12 verse 7 insists that a wooden spoon is as sure a sign of parents' love as a warm hug. It says, what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In fact, the parent who only uses warm hugs and never employs a wooden spoon really doesn't love their child. Today I want to talk about using both. Both warm hugs and wooden spoons are the tools that are needed to teach your children obedience and respect. First, let's talk about the training of the Lord, the wooden spoon. The word training is a Greek word, padeia. It means to educate through discipline. You've heard of the padeia school. It's a fitting name. The key to disciplining your children correctly is to ask yourself the question, is the discipline I've chosen providing a learning opportunity for my child? You see, discipline should train, not torture. It should prepare, not punish. Proper discipline will accomplish at least three purposes. It corrects, it protects, and it perfects. First, proper discipline, it corrects a crooked course. It pulls in the reins on a child who started to buck and rebel. It checks, it trumps their wrong choices. Kathy and I, we had four kids who liked to assert their independence And that was good. We let go a little at a time. And they learned to flap their wings, no doubt about it. But if they strayed too far off, of course, it was our job to step in and ground those little birds. A parent has to be brave enough to recognize a wrong course and put their foot down. You see, it's my job to let my kids know that privilege and responsibility goes hand in hand. And you don't get the privilege without accepting the responsibility. Here's a great quote from a wise mother, Susanna Wesley. She raised a couple of famous kids, John and Charles. Her words are now 200 years old, but they're timeless. She wrote, In order to form the minds of children, the first thing to be done is to conquer the will and bring them to an obedient temper. To inform the understanding is a work of time and must with children proceed by slow degrees. But subjecting the will is a thing which must be done at once, and the sooner the better. For by neglecting timely correction, they will contract a stubbornness and obstinacy which is hardly ever conquered. Whenever a child is corrected, it must be conquered. Self-will is the root of all sin and misery. Once my sons and I, we were walking across the football field after Nick's practice. Oh, Zach was about 15 at the time. And he says to me, Dad, why don't you take your glasses off and wrestle me? I think I can take you. And he really meant it. His brothers were shocked. I mean, the order and stability of their world was under threat. I said, oh, you think you can take me? I took my glasses off. I handed them to Mac. And in five seconds, I had that guy on the ground in a full Nelson rubbing his little nose right into the grass. For the other two guys, the world was right again. The coup had been put down. Zach had underestimated the old man, and I had to correct his attitude. 
Of course, it was all in fun, but trust me, there have been other struggles with my kids that were no fun at all. They were draining and agonizing. Hey, with toddlers and then again with teenagers, there are lots of wrestling matches. Attitude corrections are a constant occurrence. And your child needs a parent who can wrestle and win. Hey, if I've learned nothing else about child rearing, I know one thing. A parent better win the battles. Kids need to know who's boss and that it's not them. Second, good discipline, it protects. When my kids were tots, I spanked them for running out into the street. It wasn't as much punitive as it was protective. I wanted them to view the street as a dangerous place, so I created an effective deterrent. My goal was to erect in their minds an invisible wall between them and the traffic. And when they became teenagers, I was still erecting invisible walls to protect my children from harm. See, a parent's job is to build moral and spiritual walls around their kids. You see, every parent is a Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah? He was the Jew who returned from Babylon to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The previous wall lay in rubble. The city was a wasteland. For Jerusalem to prosper again, the city needed a protective wall surrounding it. You know, when I look at our society today, I see a Nehemiah-like situation. Morally, we're a wasteland. Spiritually, we're in ruins. Notions of truth and absolute values have been abandoned. Walls of right and wrong have been torn down. And if our kids are going to spiritually thrive, we need to rebuild walls of truth around them. Speaking of Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the walls, there's an insightful verse. We're told in chapter 4, verse 13, where he stationed his guards. In essence, what part of the work he considered to be most vital. He says, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. Nehemiah's chief concern was the foundations and the openings. And this is where a parent needs to focus their discipline. Oppose any threat to your child's foundation, their belief system. And then watch out for the openings, their exposures to the outside world. Be attentive to what they believe and to what they receive. And this is the area where a parent not only battles the evil out there in the world, but often he battles his own children. For kids want to watch the hip movies and listen to the cool music. And tune into the popular TV shows and have unlimited access to the internet even when they're accessing moral filth and spiritual garbage. Curiosity and peer pressure combine to produce a blindness in our kids. At times they just don't know why we say no. It reminds me of the kids who wanted to see a movie of which Dad did not approve. He ex they explained to him, they said, but Dad... It only has four curse words, just one sex scene, and some mild violence. But the special effects are incredible, and the good guy wins in the end. Well, Dad still put his foot down. Later that night, Dad went into the kitchen, and he made some brownies. Well, the kids could smell the aroma drifting through the house, and they were licking their chops. But just before they took their first bite, Dad told them, he said, I put just a little bit of dog poop in with the brownie mix tonight. It's not a lot, really. It shouldn't spoil the taste. They're still good brownies. And, of course, no one ate. 
But dad was trying to get the kids to see the obvious. If a little poop in a brownie makes it inedible, why doesn't a little filth in a movie make it inappropriate? Parents, it's up to us to just say no. To build some walls for ourselves first and then for our kids. I don't go see R-rated movies. And while they were under my roof, at least, neither did my kids. And did my teenagers always appreciate my standards? Oh boy, not hardly. At least not at the time. A parent loves their kids. And yet at times they're hated for insisting on what's best for them. You see, a mom and a dad, they have to remind themselves that they're not running for re-election. I mean, the goal of every parent is not to be popular. It's to grow healthy and holy and godly kids. You see, one day your kids are going to thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad, for not standing idly by and letting them load their minds down with trash. Mark Twain once said, When I was 16, I thought my dad was a fool. When I turned 21, I was amazed at what he had learned in five years. In the meantime, I have adopted Nehemiah's battle cry. Chapter 4, verse 14, fight for your sons and for your daughters. Parenting involves a fight. Well, Proper discipline, it corrects, it protects, but then third, it also perfects or it matures. And this is the kind of discipline that begins in infancy. Put off a feeding to stay on schedule. Forbid a child from interrupting your adult conversation with another person. Respond to a request with, not now, son. Require some patience out of your child. You see, when you delay their gratification, it disciplines them and it builds character in them. Pediatrician John Roseman once wrote, A child isn't going to develop the strength of character to say no to things like drugs, alcohol, and sex in the absence of parents who themselves don't have strength to say no when the child whines for a new video game, the latest in stereo hardware, or a new car. You see, every child needs parents with the guts to say no. It's been said, children are like stomachs. They don't need everything we can afford to give them. A child develops self-discipline from parental discipline. Kids don't need to be overindulged and given everything they want. They need to learn how to suppress a desire, do without a whim, turn from a temptation, put principle above convenience. Character grows through effective discipline. You see, proper discipline, it corrects, it protects, and it perfects. For kids to grow into responsible adults, they have to learn that certain actions carry painful consequences. So, when a parent disciplines a child, he allows that child to taste a healthy measure of those consequences. My discipline of my kids followed a three-pronged approach. First, I gave them a reason. Second, I gave them some rope. And then third, if need be, I gave them the rod. First, I would give them a reason. Hey, I would sit down with my kids. And I would explain the logic behind the law, the reason behind the rule. 
I tried to never follow my no with that stock parental excuse. You've heard it before. Just because I told you so. That's often the way to cover up for lame parenting. See, if a rule doesn't have a good reason behind it, then it needs to be discarded. Now, sometimes the only reason I could offer my child for saying no was a caution or an uneasiness that I felt that the Holy Spirit had put in my heart. Normally, the activity might be okay, but if I didn't have a peace from God about it, then my kids were taught that this was the best reason of all. Whenever a parent says no, we should be able to provide our children the reason and logic behind that decision. And yet, let me warn you, your reasons may not satisfy your child. For kids aren't always interested in logic, are they? So, that's when I would give them some rope. I would engineer a controlled crash. I would just lift the parental safety net just enough to let my children taste a little of the uncomfortable consequences that their actions were going to produce. When they were old enough to understand my instructions and yet ignored them, I would make sure they suffered the appropriate consequences. If their shoes weren't on when it was time to go, then they went in their socks. Wasn't my fault they didn't obey. If they ignored my advice and left their jacket behind, then when it got cold, they had to just sit there and bear it. If they didn't eat their dinner, they went to bed hungry. A few minutes of cold, one night without dinner, will not kill your child. I didn't fight about it, but I didn't bail them out either. I just gave my kids some rope. And I allowed them to experience the natural consequences of their actions. Sometimes it takes a child experiencing the byproduct of disobeying the rules for that child to understand the reason those rules were established in the first place. Becky was the little girl in our neighborhood who tattled to my mom. She said, Mrs. Adams, Sandy hit me. There was a strict rule in our family of boys. Never, ever, under any circumstances... Will you hit a girl? My mom was so upset with me. She was so dis disappointed. And I'm sure she wanted to spank me. But instead, she let me experience the consequences of my actions. At least sort of. I'll never forget, she made me stand there on the back porch with my hands behind my back while Becky wound up and slapped me across the jaw just as hard as she could. My mom orchestrated the whole thing. 45 years later, it still smarts. It hurt my pride a lot more than it hurt my chin. But you know what? I have never hit a girl since. Never. When my son Zach was a sophomore in high school, I went to pick him up from school one day. And when I opened the door, rather than express his appreciation for me coming to pick him up, he immediately started to complain about me being five minutes late. I didn't get angry that day. I didn't act upset. I calmly tossed his book bag out on the pavement and told him he could walk the three miles home that day. <laughs> and it made a definite impression on my son. Suddenly he was more grateful. Amazing. You see, you give your child a reason. 
And then you give them some rope and you let them experience the consequences of their actions. But after giving them a reason and some rope, if he or she still won't learn the lesson, or if the consequences of the violation are too severe, too painful to let them taste, then you need to manufacture some less painful consequences to get home the point. Say I tell my six-year-old not to play in the street, and he disobeys. Well, I'm not going to sit back and wait for a car to blindside him. Well then, now he knows why I told him not to run out in the street. No, when the consequences are too severe to let my child taste them, then it's up to me to manufacture less painful consequences to get my point home. In the case of that six-year-old, I'm going to get him out of the street before he gets hit, but then I'm going to spank his little bottom. I'm going to give him the rod. Parents, here are the three steps to good discipline. You give them a reason. You give them some rope. But then you give them the rod if need be. Now you ask, Pastor Sandy, do you really believe that God wants us to spank our kids? And my answer is a very qualified yes. And here are seven qualifications. First, never ever spank your child in anger. You cool off before you apply the heat. Always. Count to ten. Then count to ten again if need be. Do whatever it takes to get in control of your emotions before you spank your child. Second, you make sure you're spanking them for the right reasons. You don't spank a child for being childish. That is, spilling a glass of milk or forgetting a chore. Kids will be kids. You only spank a child for a deliberate act of defiance. A parent's job is to curb and control their rebellion, not crush their spirit and their initiative. A third qualification is to never spank a child on the face or on the arm or on the head or on the ears. That's not discipline. That's cruelty. Note the genius of human anatomy. I mean, God created us fearfully and wonderfully made. That includes the human posterior. Have you noticed he put some extra cushion there? How amazing. And thus he identified the place we're supposed to paddle our kids. You spank your child where God put the extra padding. The rod is only for the rump. Fourth, I tried not to spank my child with my hand, ever. I always looked for a neutral object. My belt or a wooden spoon, that was the desired choice. When the scripture talks about us spanking, it always speaks of the rod. You see, you want your child to fear the rod, but to welcome your hand. And then fifth, you should be consistent. Often parents get lazy in their discipline. Don't just spank your child when it's convenient for you to do so. During commercials. Or at the halftime of the football game. No, discipline them diligently. Act when the need arises. And then sixth, always make sure your child understands why he's being spanked. Remember the biblical definition of training. It's to educate through discipline. And then seventh, make sure that the punishment fits the crime. It's been said, don't shoot a mosquito with a bazooka. You reserve the rod for what deserves the rod. The pain inflicted on the child needs to be in proportion to the degree of the child's defiance. But if you meet all of those seven qualifications, 
then absolutely I believe that God wants us to spank our kids. The Bible's clear. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 13, verse 24 goes as far as to say, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Real love restrains his kids. Once there was a mom, she used a wooden board, a paddle to spank her kids. It hung on the kitchen wall just below a plaque. The plaque read, I need thee every hour. Well, while growing up, the kids never really knew if the plaque was referring to the Lord or to the board. After they became parents, they realized the answer was both. But here's a question. What about teenagers? I mean, do you spank a 16-year-old? I suppose you could try. But here's what I've noticed about teenagers. By the time a kid turns 14, 15 years old, They've hardened on both ends. Their head and their fanny has developed a certain callousness. The rod no longer creates the desired effect. It bounces off rather than sinks in. The rod may no longer be the appropriate tool. But remember the reason for the rod. It's a substitute for the natural consequences of an act of defiance. And so, if you don't curb a child's rebellion with a rod then you better find another substitute, a form of discipline that does manufacture enough pain to be a deterrent. And here's my advice. Find something to make them feel the consequences of their actions. In the case of a 16-year-old, the effect that pulling out that rod once had might now be duplicated by confiscating his car keys or pulling a cell phone or maybe a weekend grounding Bill Maher is a liberal commentator, and trust me, I agree with very few of Bill's opinions. But he did make one comment about fatherhood that I resonated with me. He was asked, were you and your, friend, you, were you and your dad good friends? Bill Maher replied, friends? We're friends now, but while growing up, I didn't need him to be my friend, but my dad. The idea of dads getting mushy and being friends is overblown. Dads are supposed to be the guy who tells you right from wrong. And I couldn't agree more. I want to be my child's friend. And I've done all kinds of activities to cultivate their friendship. But I know at times a parent's place is in their kid's face. My kids have lots of friends who will tell them what they want to hear, but they only have two parents who will put their foot down and insist on what's best. And thus, when it comes to the training or disciplining of our children, we should take a three-pronged approach. Give them a reason, give them some rope, and then give them the rod. But along with that rod, don't you dare forget the apple. Along with the wooden spoon, we need some warm hugs. As Paul puts it, the admonition of the Lord. I'm convinced we often spank our child for doing wrong because we haven't given them enough praise for doing right. Some kids get more attention from their parents by getting into trouble than they do by trying to be good. Yes, kids need the rod of correction, but they also need the nod of approval. Over a lifetime, a person will have many critics, a multitude of critics, but they need their parents to be their cheerleaders. 
When my kids go out to spar against the world, I want them to know that their mom and their dad are in their corner, that we're on their team. I love the story of Derek Redmond. He ran the 400 meters for Great Britain in the Barcelona Olympics. Derek had cruised out to an early lead, and it looked like he would coast to victory until suddenly he pulled up in pain. He tore his Achilles tendon and collapsed in the last 50 yards. But that's when something wonderful happened. His dad jumped out of the stands, and he ran onto the track, and he grabbed Derek's arm and helped him cross the finish line. Derek didn't win, but he fulfilled a lifelong dream. And it was thanks to his dad he finished the race. You see, the human tendency is to take the path of least resistance. Kids are prone to shy away from the fight, to give up before the fight. They need to be taught that mountains can be climbed. Mountains can be leveled. That's why they need their parents' encouragement. Notice Paul tells us in our text that we're to admonish our kids, not just with simple encouragement, but with the admonition of the Lord. That takes it up a notch, doesn't it? God's encouragement is inexhaustible. He looks over us with pleasure, but to do so, He first has to overlook so much, doesn't He? He refuses to be embarrassed by our failures. God is determined and persistent not to let our sin sidetrack us from His love. Romans 8 is adamant, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The apple that God uses to motivate His kids is the sweetest tasting apple you'll ever bite into. And He wants us to extend it to our kids. Love them, parents, with God's love. The famous painter of the 18th century, Benjamin West, he once explained why he became an artist. One day his mom left he and his sister alone. Left him and Sally while she went to the market. While she was away, the kids found a bottle of ink and a pen. Benjamin tried to paint Sally's portrait, but he made such a mess. Ink was everywhere, and the kids were fearing mom's reaction. But when Benjamin's mother walked into the house, she completely ignored the mess. She picked up the drawing, and she said, Why, that's Sally. And then she planted a kiss on Benjamin's head. In the years that followed, he would often say, It was my mother's kiss that made me a painter. Our kids need to be encouraged to pursue what's healthy, not just punished for pursuing what's harmful. Boy, I'm thankful for my parents, who just like God, they overlooked my messes and they recognized my God-given talents and gifts and then provided me the opportunities and the encouragement to develop those abilities. God fills our kids with boundless energy and ideas. The parent's job is to channel it in the right direction. Here's the story of a not-so-famous painter. One day I came home from work and I was met at the back door by my youngest son, Mac. He was about five years old at the time. He grabbed my hand and he led me to the picture hanging on the magnet from the refrigerator. This was his masterpiece. Realized the faces were green, the sky was orange, clouds were brown, the grass was red, but Mac was so proud of his picture. He was looking for my approval. And I made a big deal out of it. I said, Mac, this picture is a fabulous piece of art. After my rave review, little Mac, he smiled at me and he said, Dad, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> I was so glad he'd been accustomed to my support. 
Hey, parents need to love their kids with an unconditional love. I didn't think I'd ever need to be reminded of this truth. We had such lovable babies. They cooed and they cuddled. And love just oozed out of my every pore. But it didn't take long for those same lovable babies to start turning up their nose and talking back. Ever heard of the terrible twos? That term was coined by a parent whose kid didn't live to be three. For it only gets worse. The terrible twos give way to the defiant fives, and then the sarcastic sevens, and then the whiny nineties, and then the testy tens. And then they become teenagers, and oh boy, your babies are no longer the cooing lovable little things they once were they're now bucking and kicking and loving them becomes much more of an issue for a parent by the time your kids become teenagers they've now been around long enough to embarrass you and disappoint you they've made mean ugly comments to your wife they've even lost some of your tools your teenage kids are not as lovable as they once were or as deserving of their parents love But they don't need it any less. Kids of all ages need that sweet-tasting apple that goes right next to the rod. In verse 4 of our text, the Greek word translated admonition, it means to direct a child's mind. And this is the vital role of a parent. God tells parents to steer their children's thinking in a positive direction. It's the parent's responsibility to encourage their children to think about God and to help them dwell on spiritual themes. In essence, the parent is the captain on the deck of their child's thought life. A wise parent doesn't do the thinking for his child, but he does control the rudder. It's amazing. We'll be careful where our child's feet and hands might go. We don't let them wander too far off. but We're not so diligent with their minds. It's been said, open lots and open minds gather trash. Aim your child's mind in a positive direction, and it'll end up yielding positive results. Like Nehemiah, be concerned about the openings. Not just keep the enemy out, but put the good stuff in. Give your children pleasant things to dwell on. Deuteronomy 6 teaches the Hebrews how to convey spiritual values to their kids. It's wonderful advice. There they're told, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, you teach your kids spiritual truths while you live life with them. As you walk through The challenges of life, as you walk through them with your kids, through the trials, through the disappointments, through the triumphs, you're always looking for that teachable moment. And you live your faith. You apply spiritual values to the practical issues of your life. Your kids see it. They know it. They grow in it. All of life suddenly becomes a Bible study. That kid on the baseball team who loses his temper becomes an opportunity for you to talk about self-control. A peer's rejection is a springboard for a discussion on why our security needs to be in God and not man. Nervousness before a test is now fertile ground to teach the power of prayer and the peace of the Holy Spirit 
as well as the importance of studying every now and then. Hey, read the Bible. Pray with your kids, certainly. But do more than that. Apply the Bible to everyday stuff. Your kids want to see that Jesus is real and that Christianity is for today. And they'll see that through the faith of their parents. One Christmas, a neighbor a few streets over had a nativity scene in his yard. It was lifelike, complete with Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. My kids were so attracted to it, especially Natalie. She was probably three years old at the time. One night we were on our way home, and Nat wanted to go see baby Jesus. It was late, though, and I wanted to get home. Zach explained that that baby wasn't a real baby. It was made out of plastic. But to Nat, that major scene was so real. She just wanted to tell Jesus that she loved him. When I took my daughter into bed that night, she was still crying because she couldn't see Jesus. I had just sat in my chair when all of a sudden God pricked my heart. I walked back into the room, threw a blanket over my little girl, scooped her up in my arms, and together we drove back over to that nativity scene. And I'll never forget holding her in my arms as we were standing in the front yard. Together we were talking about how much we loved Jesus. After that night, I made the decision to never miss a teachable moment. I like the old Scottish proverb, better felt than told. When it comes to transferring our faith to our kids, applying a spiritual lesson, living out a spiritual truth is always more effective than merely hearing a sermon. Well, in closing, a parent's purpose is to teach their kids obedience and respect. And we have two tools for the job, training or discipline and admonition or encouragement. But maybe today, it's the parent here who needs to be encouraged. You know, parenting is not for the faint of heart. Being a parent can take its toll. I understand. Maybe you've been in a fierce fight for your family, and you're, quite frankly, you're worn out. You're tired of fighting the world, even fighting your own kids. You've been giving it all you've got, but no one seems to appreciate your efforts. Well, let me tell you a funny story that I think also will give you some great encouragement. An incident occurred on the streets of East Hampton, New York that made headlines. A group of 11-year-old girls were together, and one of them was heard screaming, Daddy, Daddy, please don't sing. No, please don't sing. Well, as a side note, this is a great tool for a parent. If your child doesn't obey, then threaten to sing. This is always effective. I've used this several times. For it is every child's worst nightmare, the embarrassment of their parents singing. Even this little girl in East Hampton, New York. And yet, ironically, that 11-year-old girl was none other than the daughter of Billy Joel. Millions of people love to hear Billy Joel sing, but not his 11-year-old daughter. And here's great encouragement for us parents. If Billy Joel's daughter doesn't appreciate her famous father's singing, don't be surprised if your kids don't appreciate your parenting, at least at the moment. One day they'll see it differently. One day they'll say thanks. One day you'll be their hero. In the meantime, you be faithful. A parent's purpose is to teach their children obedience and respect, and it's done with two tools the training, and the admonition of the Lord. 
the rod and the apple.